welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for April. It's here. We've had our little clock jumpy thing going on, which means it's like when you go outside at night, it's all brighter and the sun's coming out and I've been told twice I need to cut the grass, but it's a jungle, so I don't want to affect the ecosystem. (laughs) So I'm trying to get away with it as much as possible, but I did discover that if you are interested in a new lawnmower, that home base are doing them really, really cheaply. I mean, I got, like, last year they were really expensive. They were about almost, like, £200 for a decent one. But home base have got a 15% off sale. We're not sponsored by them. But I did get a really, really good top-of-the-range, like, lawnmower for about 130 quid. So I was quite right. pleased with that. And okay. it's just, raining today. Just, just Richard, right. Hello. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. All right. Petrol or electric? It's electric. Okay. Cord or battery? Um, It's a cord. Okay, adjustable height or single height? Um, you can adjust it. You need to, need to do a bit of screwing around and stuff like that, but you okay. can definitely adjust it. It's got a double-handled thing as well, and it's got the handles kind of sticking up as well. Okay. So you can actually... You're not having to do the steering where you've got the awkward... You know what it's like. You've got the steering <laughs> kind of that way, which is difficult. You've kind of got the handles. The handles like this, which is kind of better. Anyway, that's beside the point. April's here, sun's out. That <laughs> is the voice... Of Mr. Sam Turner from the Staining Podcast. Sorry, I've yet got to bring one of in... my hot topics <laughs> straight away. <The> extra, <laughs> extra special. Our extra special guest. The um the title of this episode is gonna be called uh is gonna be called Staying In and Taking the Hiss. Because from Steamforge Games, he's a repeat offender. <laughs> And that doesn't mean he's doubly offensive. It just means he's here again. We've got Sherman Matthews. Hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and you should probably stress that other fine lawnmower purveyors are available. Yes, absolutely. I don't... Why? Why? Mm. I'm not here to get... I mean, what does it matter? Well, I mean, if home-based contact... Not B&Q, gonna, B&Q don't contact me. They're not going to contact me and say, listen... <laughs> You know, I went into home basis local. I went to B&Q. It's like you have to go further along the road. You have to go to the big police station roundabout. And it's called the police station roundabout because that's where the big police station is. And then B&Q's a further bit along. But I decided to go home base. But there are other I, places you can buy kind of lawnmowers. From. I mean, I guess when you are carrying a lawnmower, it's kind of heavy. So duration of how far you have to travel is kind of important. True. It's, yeah, it's, it is that. And also um, it's the fact that I think home base have always done me quite well on a price. I think I've always walked into being human. Oh, they're a bit more. That's a bit more pricey than what I kind of expect. So Ed, before we begin, let's introduce the sponsor for this show is Home Base. Bring, bring in your garden and DIY supplies. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, last time we spoke. I mean, I don't even want to think about the last time me and Sam spoke. It was. Um, it's 
far too long. On podcast, I mean, we speak to each other kind of on a regular basis because mm-hmm. we kind of know each other. Um, and Sherwin, we spoke a couple of months ago when we we're right in the middle of kind of like Elden Ring. Mm. Elden yes. Ring extravaganza. The reason that Sam is here is because me and Sam are fans of some of the games that Sherman's done. Yeah. And he thought it'd be a really, really good idea to get Sherman on because he's quite intimidating and scary. So I thought if I was going to tackle him, <laughs> we'd do like a good cop, a good cop, kind of bad cop kind of thing. So that's what I was thinking. Um, is that, are you up Are you up for that, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. As yeah, long good, as I can be a good, good cop. Is that okay? I'll be the bad cop then. Okay. Um, Sher- okay, Sherman, where were you last Tuesday night around <laughs> about seven o'clock? <laughs> last night around, I think I was playing D and D. Oh, oh wow! I think okay. Um, I think I think around about then. That's so, Tuesday group. Yeah, that's about right. Is that regular? Is that regular kind of campaign thing that you're doing then? Yeah, I I play some form of RPG about four nights a week. So wow, um, I've. Starting starting in lockdown, um, oh. I managed to find myself about in about four different groups, you know, during the week. Because mm. yeah, what else are we going to do when we're all locked away? And um, and yeah, basically that just kind of carried on going. So, and is it different? Do you play like a continual campaign, and have you got different other campaigns that you run into, or do you have a night where you're like kind of like, well, let's just do homebrew stuff? kind of thing or does oh, it so that, that's that's four different groups it should be stressed um <laughs> wow so one of them is a dnd group one uh. of them is uh, a delta green group one of them is uh well one of them is used to be warhammer fantasy roleplay but i think he's going to transition back into dnd mm-hmm. and then the other one we kind of just pick up whatever and that can be something homebrew that we come up with or testing or whatever it can be um you know hey let's just try a brand new system we've not tried or an old one that we remember. So Blades in the Dark has been one of those, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of bounced around through various different ones. So, if, I mean, with you working in the industry, is you being kind of doing this as a hobby, as a regular thing, is that just part part and parcel? Are you literally sitting kind of like, do you wake up in the morning and you're kind of like, oh, I've got to go and do work again and kind of like make games for people. And then, oh, I've got to like do some D&D <laughs> yeah. today. It's like, I mean, does it, you know? <laughs> no, I've, I've been a, uh, a tabletop geek since probably about age seven or eight. Um, okay. And I've, I think since then, I, uh, well, since I started working with Steamforge, I don't think I've actually stopped or start, perhaps a better way to say, I don't think I've ever started work as much as just being having fun and living my best life is the best way of saying it. So I, I'm lucky enough. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have one of those very strange jobs where it doesn't really feel like a job um, because yeah. I just get to do really fun stuff, uh, which is really nice. Did you? So how did you cut? What were you cutting your teeth on at the age of like seven, eight, and nine? Then. Do you know what? I'm going to grab something from up the top of my desk and show you guys, which is obviously fantastic podcast uh, material. A thousand years ago, when I was young, Let's see. I got dragged off to a car boot sale. Yeah. Um, and as we have these terribly British things, and uh, quite whilst being bored out of my mind, I wandered around, and then I found this book. Okay. Wow. Just sitting there, 
weighing for me, which for those of you who can't see because you're listening to this as a podcast, <laughs> yes. is an advanced original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. And I probably bought this for about tuppence. I honestly can't remember how much I paid for it, but I picked it up and uh, then desperately tried to understand the contents of it, which when you have no actual main rule book or anything else is impossibly hard um, because I was also like seven. So I have no hope in the context of understanding what it was. But it didn't stop me going back to it time and time again until eventually, at some point, a couple of years later, these nice people introduced this game called Hero Quest. Wow. And that I fell in love with immediately the Christmas that my uh, my cousins and my long-suffering uncle sat down to try and talk us through it and play. And that persisted, hmm. and that kept on going. Uh, and then... From that fell out Warhammer, and then I had a little. I, it's like I leveled up a little bit more. I could understand a little bit more of the Dungeon Master's Guide at that point. Yeah. And then I kept on learning, and I kept on playing games, and I could learn a little bit more. And then around about age twelve, I, I said in my very squeaky voice, which was starting to get a bit more gravelly, then I have mastered life. I now understand this book. <laughs> I'm ready to go forth and play Dungeons and Dragons. I I, um, I just had this vision of you going about being seven years old, still rocking the beard. If I'm, yeah, being, if I'm being perfectly yeah. honest. Yes, yes, exactly what it was. Still had, still had a beanie, still had the sleeve. Um, <laughs> yeah, still what it was. So, so yeah, so at that point, I felt like I'd mastered it mm. and then went out. And uh, apart from reading a whole bunch of that point, I'd fallen very much uh, deep in the well of reading a whole bunch of fantasy literature at that stage and playing a lot of Warhammer. And, yeah, just went from there, really. Um, and... I think my role-playing career was slightly stymied by the fact that I couldn't find anybody else to play with at the time, yeah. uh, but Warhammer was at least easier. And then it wasn't until I got sort of late teens that I managed to find a regular group and then went from there. I, I mean, I was, a, I was a Hero Quest kid. Well, not a Hero Quest yeah. kid. I think it was about 13 or 14 when Hero Quest kind of came out. What about you, Sam? Were you... I... Did you get to play Hero Quest as well? No, I never got to play Hero Quest. When I was growing up, the game in our house was Upwards, um, which is a Scrabble variant where you can build the words up as well as along and down. Um, and that, that was about it. Like, I'm a pretty... Um, I'm the poster child of, of, of a late bloomer. Um, and really, I only played my first, quote-unquote, brackets, modern board game or even tabletop game back in 20... 20 like 14 2015 something like that so yeah i've done, had a lot of catching up to do it's around about the start of the golden era of kickstarter that is yeah yeah um and yeah like and and even doing like things like rpgs has been a recent sort of thing for me like um we started off getting into things like Ten Candles and Dread and doing some Dungeons and Dragons things and then obviously doing Blades in the Dark. I played Traveller for the first time at Aircon recently for a couple of hours and that was wow. absolutely, that's a bonkers. Um, mm. <laughs> um, I'm glad you used that word. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bonkers <laughs> RPG. Um, but for me, like that whole like like how how has it changed for you then Sherwin because you because like that book that you held up is written by Gary Gygax and like so that's almost from day dot of you know mm. being immersed in in this hobby and then since it's had this like 
I don't know if revival is the right word, maybe resurgence. Like I've been hearing things like, you know, that new Dungeons and Dragons movie is actually meant to be pretty good. And like, there seems to be just a lot more of an understanding of like what that part of the hobby is and like, like sort of the, the way of getting into it is a lot easier. Like, how have you seen it change over, you know, since you were in the single digits to now? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because the, the the obvious thing that I would say is, um, you know, being a tabletop geek, I'm not going to say we're cool, no, but I am going to say we're a lot cooler. We're a lot cooler than we used to be. Yeah, like if I if I go back if I go back to secondary school, you know, I was one of the uh, unfortunately I was one of the bullied kids. I was one of the quiet ones that no one really talked too much. So I think as you're right because I think depending on when you got on to and got into it. If you're like looking at getting into kind of D and D now, I mean everybody's kind of shouting yeah. about Stranger Things and stuff like that, and like everybody's kind of going crazy for Eddie and Stranger Things. And literally, I knew I knew guys like Eddie and Stranger Things when I was at high school, and they did they just just did not have the best time at high school. Whereas you kind of look at it now, and they're like everybody's going, yeah, Eddie forever. Are we bringing them back and stuff like that? And I'm just like going. What kind of parallel world or dimension have we entered into, kind of thing? Yeah, kind of. Like, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? I can obviously only speak for people in the UK and, and obviously very specifically my experience, but mm. yeah, I wasn't terribly popular at school. And what I did was, you know, I, I played with toy soldiers. You know, that was something where my peers didn't necessarily, and didn't endear me to my peers. Mm. Um, but when you kind of would have one of them who isn't part of the mob mentality would sit down with you and go, actually, what you're doing is kind of cool. Yeah. You know, but, yeah, but don't tell anyone I said that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but then um, basically as, as time went on, uh, it's just, you know, there's various different uh, touch points we've had, you know, whether you look at something like Big Bang Theory or whether Stranger Things or whatever else, geeks have slowly become more of a presence. And that has meant that, you know, I'd, I'd like to hope that you know the the guys playing it, you know, the people playing it at schools are no longer the bully kids. They're actually having fun, or people are talking to them more, or that's just more of a legitimized hobby. Um, I mean, obviously, aside from that, the other thing is it's much more accessible now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I remember, I remember also being like a uh, being the angsty teen that I was, listening to a whole bunch of very loud, very abrasive music when I was young because that's what metal was, and and yeah, you couldn't find it anywhere. Like to go get this music, you know, there was no radio station, there was no internet at that point because I'm old. It was something where you'd have to go on a pilgrimage somewhere into, you know, into uh, <laughs> to the big city, uh, into London, <laughs> yeah, and go find yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, well, and then go to shows and travel around, being sort of you know a dirty little uh, club movement, and basically find that stuff out. And the point is, is that that's that's kind of what it was, and there was no awareness of it. Whereas now, if you want to listen to that. Spotify will just throw it at you. You know, it's in yeah. movie soundtrack. It's everywhere, and it's the same with it's the same with D and D. It's the same with you know board games. The resurgence is real, is in the sense that you know you can buy them in you know Waterstones, Foils, whereas other different places now. It's in mainstream brand shops. You know, I, I, my mind was blown. Um, you know, when I went into the game in the town where I live. And there's a game that I made sitting on the shelf looking back at me. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's complete imposter syndrome just, you know, swallowed, opened up a hole and swallowed me up whole. And I'm just kind of, how is this a thing? Like, you know, people are walking around. Even one guy was even buying it. I was almost like, 
uh, no, I shouldn't mention anything <laughs> to you, but that's kind of weird. <laughs> Pull the sharpie out. Would you mind? Uh... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let, let me write on your box. Yeah. No, so that sort of stuff is, you know, is, is a very big shift because previously I think a lot of people had heard of something like, you know, Games Workshop, which is the obvious one. It has a lot of high street presence. Yeah. But no one had an awareness of what that was. Whereas now that's video games. That's, yeah, people are talking about TV shows, movies and stuff. You have Henry Cavill who will just turn up everywhere and talk about how he likes Space Marines. You know, there's various different things. There's a greater growing awareness of it and it's almost legitimized it. I I want, I mean, at some point I am going to get, I am going to pluck up the courage to ask Henry Cavill on the podcast and then I'm just going to sit there and melt for like an hour and a half or whatever <laughs> while, while he's kind of talking talking to me. Um, but is it, I mean, if, if, if it, just to be perfectly honest, if if I had been the person buying the game, I would have I would have given you the the sharpie to kind of sign it. To be perfectly but honest, you didn't know who I was though. To be yeah, fair, but yeah, but I mean, I'm just some random dude with a sleeve and, and long hair. Like, what does he know? I don't know, but if you came up and says I designed that, I'd kind of be tempted to say, "We well, go and sign it anyway, just in case." Because even if you're lying, then I've got like a kind of a sign <laughs> a sign box, which is kind of fine. But let's, I mean, talking about. The design side of things because hmm. i okay this is oh this is gonna sound how's how's the how am i gonna say this without sounding like i'm sitting in the the hms sycophantic um, <laughs> you know say, sailing towards the kind how, of the compliment iceberg uh, saying she's gonna go do down you make the good games <laughs> no it's not that but, <laughs> But okay, what I'm, what I'm saying is right. What and you've 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 you've, you've put me at the side, Mister Turner. We're going to be having words in the car after this. <clears throat> With other people designing games, right? Okay, I want to design a game about making a cup of coffee. So I go ahead and I make a des- I make a game about designing a cup of coffee. And I make cool. my cars. Like? And I make my car. Okay, so it is a. <laughs> And people do this bear to me all the time. This, always bear go- in mind that this game exists and I played it and it's actually very good, but go on. Right, okay. Oh, okay, sounds fantastic. Okay, 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 okay. Let's so see how it's close a game you get ba- to the actual design. <laughs> it's a game based around coffee orders. Okay. Mm. And you're so juggling... You're like coffee mama. You're juggling... Well, you're kind of juggling resources based on time. Okay. Because basically you've got... On each of the cars, there's basically an indicator of time. So in the top corner of the car, it will have one, two, three, four, five, and that's an indicator of time. Now, you can you've got options on how fancy you make the coffee, but obviously certain certain customers you'll you'll lessen the number of customers that want that particular type of coffee from you because it takes more time and there's a chance it's going to get cold. So you've got to balance up putting together the special ingredients that will get you more money and gain you towards being a run-of-the-mill coffee service to being something which is a bit more kind of fancy, and you're able to charge more prices. So it's a balance between those kind of resources. So when somebody comes in, you play from a hand of cards, whether you're going to have like two shots of espresso, which might be just like a, a one, whereas if you're wanting to do like a fancy kind of caramel frappuccino, that might be a three, but it might obviously, you're able to charge more for that, but you've got a certain amount of time that you've got to use for your resources. And that's kind of it. What I'm saying, right, is that <laughs> nobody's going to come to me and say, you're doing this cup of coffee game wrong. Whereas in the games that you've created, 
Mm. But the res, like, say your Resident Evils, your Resident Evil 3, Elden Ring, and obviously moving on to Sea of Thieves as well. There is somebody there who who is instantly going to be a critic for you. How how do you deal with that? Do you just let it wash over you, or do you, or do you keep an eye out just in case people come up with kind of valid critiques and criticism that you can then bring into a future version or bring into an expansion or something like that? I want to come back to that in the second or third hour of this podcast because right now I'm thinking about your coffee game. So you could use the customers as a timer deck. So you could have like a timer deck across the top of your dashboard, right? And yeah. you've got your and you've got your people, and they yeah. basically slot into that. Yeah. And at the end of every round, they kind of move once. Imagine that like as yeah. a row of cards going yeah. from left to right, and they basically move down. Yeah. And effectively, what you're trying to do is get their drink to them before they get to the end, or otherwise they lose interest and yeah, you know, yeah, leave. yeah, basically. So so and and on your side of the of the dashboard i imagine this is kind of a solo experience but you could do it with multiple players if you want and you're spending your actions to effectively let's say like you've got the sort of you know the milk you know jug or whatever that starts off with a number of tokens on it and as you use it to make your different coffees you're you're discarding tokens yeah. so one of your actions might be replenish that but obviously when you're doing that you're not then making coffee yes so you're trying to efficiently move around and do those sort of things and then you can play bonus cards from your hands to like add cinnamon to the top if someone has a chai latte for yes. example and that sort of stuff which gets you more points it's like a multiplier but it takes longer to make so therefore you've got the danger mm-hmm. of you know you've got the danger as you could basically make a couple of drinks and have it mm-hmm. and people are moving down but you've got to make sure that somebody that's ordering the more expensive drink right. is further up the track so by the time you've got that drink made for them they're still on the track and have not disappeared mm-hmm. now the way that it would work is is that whether it's two players or three players you've got a couple you've got a finite number of you've got a finite number of customers which are slightly more cars than the actual people but everybody has a track of maybe like six six to eight spaces and the customers actually move around everybody's kind of cafe kind of searching all oh, right the best so like a one. sushi belt of uh, consumers pretty much like a sushi yeah. belt of customers like that and basically then if you manage to if you manage to then win that customer, you win that customer, you claim them and they have a points value as well. And then you deal another card which goes onto the conveyor belt. So you get a new customer as it goes. Okay. I, I, so being I with that, sorry, Logan, Sam. Well, I was just going to say like that, that's it. It's, a, um, it's an interesting, that's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because I could just imagine it like being lots and lots of low value customers going around. And then do you wait for the, do you wait to brew the really special coffee for the high value customer, knowing that whilst you're waiting, everyone's picking up the lower value, you know, customers. um, You could balance, you could balance up with sets. So for instance, if you get a set, if you get a set of like, say three, three customers who are all, who are all ordering just an America, a special, normal Americano then yes, normally if you got just three customers, you would get three points. But if you collected, obviously, a set, every set is actually worth four points or five points instead. So yes, it's it's to get make sure everybody's collecting all the smaller guys as well as getting kind of like the bigger guys. But you can also have kind of bonuses where you can introduce kind of new menu items or new ingredients as well based on how simple or how more complicated you want the game. You could have the oat milk expansion, couldn't you? 
Exactly. You'd have to have you'd, you'd also have to have the almond milk and yeah. the gluten the gluten free yeah. oat milk uh, expansion as well. Milk. Are we all yeah. taking notes on this by the way? Yeah, just... well, if, I, if I'd realised <laughs> this I would have brought my board game idea to, to the table <laughs> to the table as well. Well we can do. Um so what I've attempted to do there is actually say, and that's how you make a game that people yeah, people will complain about your game, but that's how you make a game. Mm-hmm is effectively what we always try to do. And again, as promised, I will come back around to your original question. Yeah. Um, what we always try to do as part of our process um, is we try to drill into the core DNA of what it is that we're trying to make. Yeah. You know, whether that's a licensed product, whether that's an actual game. So, And we'll use Resident Evil as the example because that's obviously one of the things you mentioned. Yeah. What What is it that makes a Resident Evil game a Resident Evil game? You know, is it is it I'm blasting all the zombies I can see in sight and they're all just being gunned no. down and I'm basically full no. like zombie Rambo. Is it that you know, every so often one of my friends has to dive against the window, smash it to pieces and then just start screaming at me, maybe. Um but it, it's something where yeah, you know, what makes a Resident Evil feel game feel different to mm. you know, like you know, to a zombie side game, to a game of you know, to um a Left for Dead game. What makes it feel different to Silent Hill? What makes it feel different to any other type of survival horror or zombie experience that I'm playing? And once you start to understand what that is, mm. you start to understand those key pillars that you can then return to time and time again and go, right, well Resident Evil is a resource management game. You know, yes. Straight away, first core rule, you can't kill all the zombies. If you can kill all the zombies, then you're missing the point because you've got too much ammo. The whole thing is looking at this and saying how am I going to get through this particular combat yeah. puzzle? You know, am I going to run past these zombies? Am I going to gun yeah. them down? If I gun them down, I'm using my ammunition resource to use too much of that, and I can't kill them later on, which might be okay, but probably not. You know, I might need to get out of a pinch. But if I try to run past them, I might get bitten. So my health is my resource at that point, and my luck, effectively, how much I can you know, rely on that. And that's effectively what you know, one of the many pieces that falls into what a Resident Evil game is. And there are obviously several others in terms of tension and horror and all sorts of other bits and you know, according to that. Yeah. The more you get your game experience to be resonant with what you're trying to um you're trying to emulate, the less you have people you know, the more that you are better insulated from people who say, Well, this doesn't feel like the game. Because ultimately, even though the mechanic may not be the same, even though um, it may work slightly differently to how it works in the video game if the sen- you know, if the feeling of the game is the same, if it makes people, you know, if it is evocative of people's favourite game and that's why they sat down to play and they go, do you know what, this feels like Resident Evil, this is cool, I love this, Yeah. then that's how you get a lot of positive sentiment with your game and that's how you know you've done a good job of emulating, you know, of, of simulating what that game is, even if you haven't necessarily simulated it on a one-to-one scale. And I think that insulates you quite a lot from when you do get people invariably who you know aren't necessarily happy with what the product is that you've made because irrespective of whether they enjoyed the experience or not, ultimately most of those people will still go, but you know what, you nailed it, it just wasn't for me. Yeah, and yeah. Key thing. Horizon Zero Dawn, I think, I think there was a lot of people that were expecting to have kind of like a 50-hour or 70-hour hmm. video game with kind of huge explorable kind of landscapes. Mm-hmm. And but if they, it was really funny because like if you read the kind of the rule book, <laughs> it kind of actually explained kind of this is what this was where. And then when you got into that, it was like yeah, this is, you know. And when I wrote about it, that's what I said. I says you know this is not people who are expecting the entire game, are going to go oh this isn't the entire game. But people who are expecting to have the kind of the the kind of gameplay strictly regarding taking on the different machines would have been kind of kind of right at home. Um, 
with regards to that and slipping very slightly into Elden Ring, which um, I played tons and tons of the video game. I don't know if you played Elden Ring at all much, Sam. Of course, yes. Who hasn't? <laughs> yes. Come on. This <laughs> is when Sherwin says, no, I didn't have time to. I was too busy, too busy <laughs> designing the bloody video. Uh, Whenever I make any game, I spend hours playing. You know, if, I, if it's an adaptation, I'll spend hours playing. Yeah. Or, you know, observe, you know, picking up. Like, you know, um, they're not all obviously video games. Peaky Blinders, for example. I just sat there and watched a whole bunch of Peaky Blinders to get a feel for mm. it. But the point is, is that whenever you're making any licensed product, you have to immerse yourself in the uh, what it is. Uh, the the thing with that strikes me that's interesting about adapting things like Elden Ring and Dark Souls and is those very singular experiences. And obviously, uh-huh. you know, you work for Steamforge, they're a business, and you um, you've got to attract customers and people to buy buy your games. So therefore replicating that solo experience is you know you're cutting out a, b- a big chunk of you know the market who want to have a shared experience on the table so i guess why i'm asking what i'm asking is like that that th- those games especially like elden ring and demon souls which are all about that atmosphere of being alone one person versus the many like that is so much of the of the of the appeal of those games so how do you sort of stop yourself from just saying well it's just a solo experience and um and and that's it i think yeah it's a good question i mean i think i think as i sort of hinted out earlier simulationism simulation works to a point we don't ever want to get ourselves into a stage of saying well we do this exactly the way it works in the video game mm-hmm. because ultimately mm. people wish go well i'll just go play the video game then if True. that's what it is yeah. people people sit down to, people sit down to experience games in various different ways for various different reasons you know some people some of our audience they just love our games because they love the miniatures you know they want to go get you know the various different i know for example at the Elden ring launch event some people were just blown away by the miniatures like hey do you want a demo no i just want to come and look at godry the grafted oh, yeah, really? that, that's yeah, really where i'm at that sort of thing and yeah and then that's fine like in all in all walks of life people have different um you know different ways of interacting with things some people are very tactile some people you know and they want to kind of pick up all the models and, and go roll, you know they sit there rolling dice or building towers out of meeples or whatever else other people are much more focused on the rules and making sure everything is super clean and tight controlled that way it's yeah there's there's all completely different ways of approaching things as to why people sit down and play games you know, just end off, not just our games. And I think something where um, one of the questions I always ask myself, like, if, again, we'll go back to well, Elden Ring or Resident Evil or any of the games we've just mentioned. Horizon's another good example. Why do you play a tabletop game of this when you could be playing a video game? Um, now, part of that is obviously the social contract. It's nicer to sit down with your friends face-to-face and just play games with them. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of fun. Um, around the table, it feels more personable. But the other part is also... Well, I can't play Horizon with other people. Hmm. I can't play yeah. these games. Like, it literally, if I want to sit there, yeah, we can sit there and all just talk for the next, you know, forty-five minutes about how awesome it was to play Elden Ring. But hey, do you want to go on? You know, do you remember that bit where we did the dungeon together? No, because we didn't do that because okay. we can't do that. Now, obviously, that does exist within Elden Ring to a limited way now. But when we first started talking about it, it very much didn't. And I think 
I think it's fair to say the majority of people who've played it, it's a solo experience. And even then, you're not in the so, same room, are you? You're not. It's exactly it. Yeah. So at that point, it's a new way to interact with your favorite game. Is the core thing. Yeah, one of the one of the big things that we had coming out of Resident Evil is is a lot of people going, "Hey, I got to sit this down and play, you know, sit down and play this with my family. We all got to enjoy it together instead of just talking about yeah. how awesome it was watching someone playing this or how awesome it was, you know, that we all went away and you know played it all individually. We got to approach it in a completely different way. It still feels like Resident Evil because what we do and the way we move around and everything, but we got to work together to overcome what was being thrown at us and people like that. That's a rewarding experience. And that in itself is probably the biggest driver to why you just go, do you know what? We should always have a solo mode because there's a lot of people out there who want to play games and they want to solo it and so forth. But at the same time, adding in extra players is, is extra gameplay. That's extra kind of content that people really want. And that's and board games and tabletop games. Most, most of the traditional focus absolutely is playing with all of your friends. Yeah. Do you think there's a danger with board games at the moment edging into becoming very, very complicated pieces with lots of moving bits that people end up just going, actually, it is easier if I just play. <laughs> I wish there was a video game version of this. Because of, of, of recent, I have seen kind of big, huge games coming out. I mean, massive, huge behemoths, and we'll all know who they are. Um <laughs> And they've got so many kind of moving, intricate parts that would actually probably be taken up by a bit of code in a video game. That mm. I think sometimes you forget that the tabletop thing isn't about learning 20 million different rules and 20 million different mechanics and how everything kind of pieces together. But like, you know, like your Resident Evil game, it is just a case of the zombies are always going to be moving. I don't need to roll individual dice for all the zombies. I don't need to understand their motivation. I don't need to give them names. I don't need to look at their individual hit points. All I know is they're coming towards me. I need to either run or fight. Um, you don't give names to your zombies? You know what, dude? Zombie I'm one, gonna zombie publicly. <laughs> Zoe, oh. Sander. Right. The cranberries. But, but we've, we've seen... A they, few- they often... <laughs> Zombies are people too. <laughs> zombies, zombies were people too. There's been a bit of that, Richard. Though, in uh, if you have you played Paperback Adventures, the I haven't. No, so I don't really play board games. I don't like them. Fair enough. <laughs> I prefer speaking to people. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen the face that Jeremy gave. Them. It's like you're lucky. You're not like <laughs> you're lucky. You're not near the office. Otherwise, I would run up and probably. I don't know, attack me with a sharpie. Uh, it be a long run to get to the office. It's a four and a half hour drive away. Exactly. You've got a long it's way like, to get away exactly. if I'm running out I'll tell you, you name the place, I'll come and fight you. And it's like, well, let's go and try and fight some place where it's gonna, we're all going to get very tired before we decide we're going to actually have a fight. Um, anyway, you were saying, Sam. But I was saying, that. like, you know, what, what you're saying about that, that complication and what video games do um, which is really good in terms of streamlining a lot of the 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 the, the rules spaghetti in the back mm. end like paperback adventures kind of but like really challenges that in an interesting way so it's a it's a card game by tim fowers and sky larson and the the pitch of the game i don't know if you've heard of it sherwin is um slay the spire um but cross with scrabble and um 
it was it's an attempt by both the designers to try and figure out how to bring a Slay the Spire kind of experience to the table. And you do that by battling different enemies, by spelling out words, and how you spell out words you know, defines what kind of attacks you do, whether you do attacks or defense. And it's a really, really clever and, and smart piece of work. But there's a lot of like interface with what's going on on the table. There's lots of um, rules and things that you have to fiddle with and, and stats that you have to move up and and different ways that um, the game interacts with its items and its and its skill set means that there's kind of a lot to to hold in your head at a time. But along with it, they also made a, a a version of it that you can play on Steam, which does a lot of the sort of the the, the complicated rule stuff in the background. And I, you know, I've played it sometimes and thought I could just be sitting on my sofa and playing the <laughs> the <laughs> video game the video game version of this. Like, but there is just something. And I don't know whether it's just because I'm a bit of a rules hound. Like I read rule books in bed. Like I'm notorious for it but i'm I'm, it does but i'm a bit like in my board game group i'm the one who learns all the games i'm the one who teaches them all like just being very familiar with rules and and applying it to something with a table is sometimes part of the fun um Mm. i find anyway and you know when we when we played like resident evil and that thought of like you know it's stuff like you know when you walk into a room and it's got the yellow or red hatching on it. And it's suddenly like, right, this isn't just a computer deciding this. This is a dice that we're all going to throw and we're all going to witness and we're all going to look on the chart together to see what's going to happen. And that is a lot more fun than just letting a computer do it, um, if you know what I mean. There's an awful lot to unpack there um from the original question all the way through to that but let's start on that last point you pointed out because i i like that that's <clears throat> no that that's just really nice to hear because that's something i worked really hard on resident evil uh to 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 basically the, the thing about resident evil is there's it's an immersive you know the actual video game is an immersive experience yeah. it's something where you are scared terrified of what's around the next corner yeah the whole game is running from brief oasis of light to brief oasis of light um is the way of thinking of it and you are running out of resources and and one of the things you realize is when you like get killed by something you don't realize you've been holding your breath the entire time because everything is this desperate battle to try and survive to get from this next point and it isn't until kind of you 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 know maybe you get killed by a giant alligator or whatever kind of you go sink back into your chair and realize i've been holding my breath the entire time i've been so immersed in this Mm -hmm. thing my body is reacting to this Mm -hmm. now one of the things we tried to do when we made the game was very much think about this as how do we introduce that kind of level of psychology to people without it being a rule? Because one of the things we never want to do is burden people with too much complexity. Yeah. Whenever we design any game, we have something internally we kind of term complexity points. And if you make something really complex, like, you know, let's, you, we'll stick with Resident Evil. So the zombie reaction system is probably the most complex part about Resident Evil that means that the player the player phase of that, as in the action phase where you're moving around, that needs to be super straightforward. And the tension phase, that needs to be super straightforward yeah. because we spent all of our complexity points on the reaction phase. If you had a really complex action phase, then a really complex reaction phase, and a really complex tension phase, then everyone would find it impenetrable as a game, especially knowing that the audience 
primarily are video is a video game one and those people may not traditionally be used to what a tabletop game is because exactly as you've identified they're used to a video game where a lot of the engine is doing stuff under the hood you never even see yeah yeah so one of the things we wanted to do is go well how do we introduce that well one of it is the tension deck you know you might know i mean i'll happily tell anybody that the breakup of cards in an average resident evil scenario is 70 percent green 20 percent amber and then 10 percent red but that that's numbers the point is is that when you're drawing that card you are really scared you're going to draw a red card yeah and even if you draw a green card yeah okay but that just means i'm closer to a red card. <laughs> closer to drawing red ones yeah right. exactly and and as you start drawing it and there's you know, and there's interesting things that we did with those as well. So, for example, if you read the flavor text on it, you know, there's there's some which, you know, a dog howls in the distance, you know, but you're okay for now. Three, ter- three turns later, when a dog jumps jump through the window, people make, there's emergent narrative there because people make complicated <laughs> yeah. jumps. They're like, that's the dog. I heard it howling. You know, it's obviously got nothing to do with reality. Yeah. There's no timer that's applied by that card. But it's small triggers like that that make people think of this. It's the ammunition dial when you're counting down. One of the purposeful things we talked about originally was we could have tokens to represent how many bullets you have, or you could write it down on a piece of paper, or you could track it with a dice or something. But no, actually picking up that dial and counting down the amount of bullets you're going to fire at that zombie is a physical action you're doing, and that makes you doubt yourself, because actually as that dial is going lower and lower, you're changing it down, and you're starting to go, okay, do I really want to spend this many bullets? I'm now starting to worry that I can physically see this thing going mm. down. It's a tangible, it's more tangible that way. It's exactly what you mentioned, going into that room and going, watching that dice bounce around yeah, and waiting yeah. for it to land and go, what could it be from this this horrific kind of, you know, um, a menu of stuff that could be waiting for me? It's a six. means there's no enemies. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, we can move <laughs> on. But it doesn't stop me worrying about what's going to happen next. No stuff like that it's small details where these are things that won't ever appear in the rules so they are effectively complexity light but they're still very evocative of what that core experience is the more wins you can get that way the more it starts to feel like the game without necessarily needing to so effectively it's our engine that happens under the hood just that we're relying on biomechanics to do it yeah are you a creative question and i'm gonna i'm gonna Try and be musical with this. Are you a guy who's got a lot of melodies just looking to find the right kind of song lyrics? Or do you kind of invent everything that comes up as a new thing? Do you have a book of mechanics for board games that when you get a new IP, you say, actually, we can maybe look at using this or we can maybe look at using that? Or if somebody, say, for instance, say, when, it, when Elden Ring did come up, I was, you know, looking at it. There's p- possibly a lot of stuff that you could borrow from, like, you know, Dark Souls and stuff like that. One of the major things was the exploration thing. Now, I was thinking, is that something that you had to start from scratch? Or did you have, is there, a, like, a Sherwin big book of board game notes that you go in and say, I'm going to look at this section and see what we can kind of pick from there? So we never, and, and I can happily say this company-wide, none of our design team have, whenever we approach any new project, we always sit down and go, right, we're from scratch. We are working out. We always do the core DNA process I mentioned earlier. Yeah. We always sit there. We identify what that is and how we, the, the first step is always, so how do we make core DNA? You know, what is the, establish the core DNA? What is it that makes this game this game? Mm-hmm. Right. 
now we've done that, or what do, you know, if it's our own licensed product, what do we want this game to be? And once we've identified those things, it's now, right, okay, so now let's think about mechanics. How can we, how can we create that feeling? And yeah, maybe we might have something where we've done it before. And we go, oh yes, I could use a tension deck here to recreate that, for example. I could do X, Y, Z. Yeah. But we never, we never have like a big book where we go right. Put down the idea in that. At some point, we'll land on that, and we can just bolt this in the year. We can yeah. just effectively, we can turn this into this. We n- we never ever approach anything like a monopoly where we have a core engine and we just slap a label on top of it and that's it. We're not about skinning anything, and that's why we always want to build. As you can tell from where I'm talking about, this is very, we're very passionate about. This is something where any game that we make is always, it's that game. It's specifically built for that game. It's entirely bespoke. We want it to be that way. We want it to be, you know, we, we are far more respectful of what we actually get to work on and the games and our audience uh, to, to what we internally talk, call white boxing. I don't think that's the right term. It's something that we use, but it's something where we never want to just reskin an engine that we might already have yeah. to make something <clears throat> else. Yeah. We always want it to be very distinctly that. Um, and yeah, and I think that generally tends to serve us quite well. In terms of that said, um, at any given time, Matt Hart, our creative director, and I, I mean, there's about 20 different games that we've, got under the hood at some point where we've gone oh yeah we should do this at some point yeah like mm. yeah, we, I, I, tra- I travel quite a lot with matt either up to hq or you know where we're going on a plane somewhere or whatever else um and and when we're doing that we're always like oh we could do a game around this and we'll just bounce ideas off of each other and scribble them down a notebook somewhere and at some point we will get around to making any one of these many millions of games um but but they won't be a reskin thing. That will be like a whole Steamforge IP thing when we actually get the chance to actually do it. Mm. It's just a case of normally, as you've already identified, we're quite busy. So it's something where we don't have time to kind of yeah. go, oh, yes, of course, let's make another five. Yeah, let's make another five games this year. Are there, so. are there games that, you've, that you're proud of that are out there and you've designed that you wish more people had eyes on? I was good with you until you said the bit about the, the, you said something there that triggered my imposter syndrome, and I felt incredibly conceited for answering yes. Um, I mean, the, the key thing is that the answer is I, I would like, I would hope that you know people seem to like the games that you know Steamforge makes and I make, which is awesome and fantastic, and you know really, really very appreciative of that. I would like, with that in mind, I'd like people to have more access to play games that you know good games that, that are fun as much as is humanly possible. I'd love for every Resident Evil person to sit down and play Resident Evil and go, you know, love it, indifferent, hate it, whatever, yeah. have the experience of playing it, because it would be lovely to just give them the choice to do that. One of the things that's been the nicest part of my job that I've had without any level of, you know, simply the nicest thing without any level of doubt has been when I've had, she's spoken to people and they said, you know what, I didn't even know tabletop games were a thing. But I loved Resident Evil, or I loved Horizon, or whatever. Yeah, I got into this because of that, and since then I've become a board gamer. Mm. Like I now have a big board game collection of different games. I like play D anD D, or I, you know, I now I've discovered that actually Warhammer isn't a geeky thing, or whatever their whatever their poison is. Yeah, they've discovered a whole new world. That's the most insanely rewarding thing I think I've ever been told by anybody, and that's and that's lovely. So, I mean, it was commented on George Lucas. Um, and uh, I think it was Steven Spielberg said that sometimes he wished Star Wars hadn't been successful because we probably missed out a whole cracking set of films that George Lucas would have done if he hadn't done with Star Wars. So if you 
if you weren't involved in so many of these kind of IP-based games, are we missing? Is there a hole again? Is there maybe a, a, a pile of... We're talk, joking about the coffee, the coffee cafe, the cafeteria <laughs> game. But is there a pile of games out there that you would say, you know, if I had... Is it like, you know, are you going to get the age of 50 and instead of like building a boat or get a model railway, are you going to start creating the kind of... <laughs> Sherman's range of games kind of thing is that I mean maybe um it's not far off now bless but um it's it's ultimately I get to make awesome games irrespective of whether they're IP games or not yeah um I mean as I said there's Matt and I have a hopper of games that we would love desperately to get around to making we just never seem to have the bandwidth to do it yeah um I would love to go or sort of get around to those. The thing is they keep growing every time we go traveling anywhere, like we'll just be trapped in a, you know, in a box, whether that, you know, trapped in an air conditioned box, whether that's a car or plane or a train or whatever, we'll just sit there and bounce ideas off of each other. Cause we're both geeks who just love what we do. So a lot of our, you know, a lot of, um, the Steamforge, uh, one of my, um, one of my sort of roles at Steamforge is lead design. Uh, so that means I generally tend to work with Matt at the very early stages of most of our games, but yeah, you know, sort of concepting, proof of concept, yeah. um, you know, early prototyping, that sort of stuff. And that, that as a result, our conversations always lead to, oh, do you know what I was playing the other day? This, you could do something similar in a game like X. Oh, that'd be cool. And then let's just run with that and see where we get to. I remember during one random design week that we had, I looked at a, a picture on a ward on a whiteboard and I was like, huh. You could turn into a really interesting, like, guitar hero kind of vibe with that. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. So basically, you have a hundred of cards here, and you do this, and then when basically you have a timer deck going along here, and you have to play cards into that, and, you know, that makes these different things, and that scores you points. Half hour later, we kind of go back, okay, cool, so we've, you know, we've, we've basically gone through that, so now we've got that game. <laughs> and now let's go back to Golden Ring. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's kind of how it rolls. Um. I'm going to ask Sam a question. Okay, Sam. Go on. What kind of video game would you like to see turned into a board game? Oh. Oh, That's mean. It's not mean. mean. It's not mean. I sent you the list of questions. I can't help it if you didn't pick them up. Oh, wait, no. There was a list of questions? No, there wasn't. Oh, Oh, wait. Oh, no, it's in my drafts. No, you didn't send it. (laughs) (laughs) You fool. Um... Oh, I mean, hmm, difficult one, that. Um, I'd always thought, and I know this isn't a, a, a video game, but I've always thought the Three Musketeers would make a really great video game because it's quest-based mm. and mm. Um, it, it reads, considering when it was written, it reads like a video game. Basically, it's just four guys going out on fetch quests all the time. Um, and four not very likable guys either. Don't don't believe what the three musket hounds um, try no, to. Why aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing Dog Tanyan? I mean, most, <laughs> yeah, no. Most, don't most, believe what Dog Tanyan tried to teach you as a, as a kid. Um, so I always thought that, that would be quite an interesting cooperative um, oh. experience to go on missions as the as the three plus one uh, musketeers with with personalities affecting the gameplay in um you know in in certain ways and affecting things like combat and how you interact and, and all that kind of stuff and 
I think the other thing that is has, has been kind of the, the main sort of video games that I've been playing recently have been things like you know the case of the golden idol and the curse of Oberdin. and love that game yeah and I I don't know how there's there's the wonderful thing that case the golden idol golden idol does does really well is that feeling of you know slotting things in and completing a picture and um that wonderful element of deduction where it makes you feel really 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 smart and there's i think there's games that that do that but i feel like sometimes what board games slip into is actually making you feel like a bit of an idiot for for missing things so like sherlock holmes consulting detective is a great case in point (laughs) that it's a great it's a great game of deduction and reasoning but at the end sherlock just turns up and goes ah i did that in three moves what he's on about i couldn't i couldn't get the box open for that (laughs) (laughs) whereas whereas video games in terms of that that deduction I feel like they just have a bit more of a because part of that part of the joy of that deduction is opening it up, looking at a case, closing it down and going to do something else, and then half an hour later you suddenly go, Well, what if it's that? And then you come back and then you can just open it up and just But when you're like the other day we played um uh Tragedy Looper um from WizKids, yeah. uh formerly of Z Man games as well. And that and that's a really nice deductive game. Like it's really, really, I mean, it's like pure deduction. You go into that knowing absolutely nothing, and you've got to. But you're under a time limit, and you're under pressure, and the whole game is kind of against you. Whereas, where Case of the Golden Idol does really well is the games actually. We want you to make you feel smart. We want you to make. We want you to feel like a genius, and to pick up on all these little things, and it encourages you to do that. And I think that's incredibly hard to do to do as a as a board game my i guess my question is leading into you've done resi three when's resi four hitting <laughs> it's a good question oh come on don't we've had a good now, 54 now I, minutes of chatting and i just would i just i'm wondering straight back hit, to you would it hit back would it hit the same way as resi three how do you mean hit like, as in you pick up the box and if you were to hit someone, it does the same well, I mean, any, any of the Steamforge range is like a hospital trip. I mean, but Resi 3 was an, Resi 3 is a really interesting case, case in point, I think, Sherwin, because, and this is something that I wanted to ask you was it, was it difficult to make Resi 3 knowing that you were just iterating off Resi 2? like no like stopping yourself from making big wholesale changes like trusting the design knowing that it was that it was good enough do you know it's interesting because when we make a sequel to a game we generally back to that complexity points thing we generally tend to go most of our sequels will have 1.5 changes in them Mm -hmm. uh, from the original version unless unless we want to make yeah obviously we'll always have case-by-case things but if it was something where the audience received it very well, and Resident Evil 2 definitely had that, what are our 1.5 changes? Yeah, what what do we want to make to this that is more evocative of what the experience is or, or makes it slightly better, polishes that? And it's something where zooming into that when, well, I kind of 
part of it is part of it is the fact that Resident Evil One through Three, the video games, are all effectively the same engine, just with mm-hmm. more polish added to yeah. it. They're extra animations, they're slightly smoother with the way they work and so forth. And there's no reason why our video, uh, sorry, why our board game should be any different to the video game. Ultimately, it's the core engine. It's what people like. It's what seems to make the yeah. You know, it's what makes it tick, and it's what people seem to really sort of drill into and go. This actually is really good for the experience. So for me, the the question wasn't well. People like the reaction for the action reaction tension phase that works well. So so what do we want to address? Well, yeah, you know, there's a few things. I want to make it so there's less setup time. I want to make it so that it feels like the tension deck evolves and the game adapts to you. I want to create an open world board game that's you know that's small task i want to create i I want to make a way of making the uh making the the special attacks for the enemies feel more fluid and feel more elegant than what they were so those are the sort of bits i drilled into i mean some of that is obviously more um more developer focus kind of you know how do i speed up setup time and so forth but the other element was how do i yeah, I kind of went, well, that's probably kind of the bits to iterate on rather than core engine since people seem to seem to like that. Um, yeah, and, and outside of telling slightly weird stories about how we ended up sort of coming up to those different ideas. Um, that I think that gives us enough, that gave me enough confidence when I was looking at RE3 of actually people really like this and I and the video game had the same thing as well. It, mm. just, it just built on what was already there before. So let's yeah. do the same. So that's a nice guiding light. So let's just look at our 1.5 changes. Let's not try to throw the baby out of the bathwater and completely reinvent it. It's ultimately a very similar game. And that's what we want to do. Yeah. And I also remember, like, even in the video games, as Resident Evil changed, everybody absolutely loved 4. But then when they went into 5, people kind of went, oh, no, we don't. (laughs) This is... and this is a key thing. If we if we were to make Resident Evil Four, yeah, that is a very different game to Resident Evil One, Two, and Three. So if if I were to build an engine for Resident Evil Four, then what I would do is I'd very much um, you know look at this and go right. So what's back to the core DNA question? What's the core DNA of this game? Yeah, you know, is it this is a more of a blasting you know not zombies anymore, but I'm blasting enemies away. This is much more if you were to look at Resident Evil Four. I'm going from one point to the next uh, as a sort of level progression. Mm. There's chapter ends. You know, there's merchant that I buy stuff off of. Ammunition is much more plentiful. There's a lot less um, survival horror element to it. There's much more of a combat puzzle. You know, effectively, if you're to think of the core Resident Evil 4 experience, I go from combat arena to combat arena, and there are objectives within that. Yeah, yeah. first one. I, try, I need to survive. There's a man of a chainsaw running around trying to murder me and a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. I'm just trying to move around and not get killed until the time is up. Another area, you know, Ashley's been grabbed. Someone's running off with her. This will mean nothing to people who haven't played Resident Evil. <laughs> apologies, but someone, someone's grabbed my partner. I need to protect them. You know, whether I've got a sniper rifle and I'm shooting enemies as they get close to her. You know, these are effectively our combat puzzles that they just don't exist in the original Resident Evil series. But that's fine. That just means if we were to make a Resident Evil 4 game, that's the sort of stuff we would drill into instead. And that would therefore mean that we'd change the engine around. And has working on any of these games has it allowed you to have ultra geeky geek out moments where you've kind of got emails from certain people or you've been sent stuff or even met people where you've just went oh i can't believe this is happening yes (laughs) 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 so so, do do you know that the most the most surreal moment uh, i think ever happened 
was the original director for Resident Evil 2, um, sharing a tweet uh, where he's like, I've just got a copy of Resident Evil 2, the board game. And I'm like, mind blown. <laughs> like you're literally kind of looking at this thing going, I loved your game a whole bunch of time ago. And this is why I'm doing my job. Like, you know, this is why I got to make this game. And I played it to death. And now here's you saying, I really like playing this game. It's something I made. And I'm just going, this is the most surreal day I think I've ever experienced in my entire life. But it's kind of cool. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Do you also have to have like moments where you're kind of like, you must be a really good secret keeper as well. I mean, you must be watertight and just go, just walk in the house and go, can't, what, what were you doing today? Can't talk to you, can't tell you. Do, do you have like kind of debrief moments and you say you, you and Matt go on a lot of trips? Where you sit there and you just like high five each other for five minutes and go, I can't believe that we're doing this kind of thing. Now that I'm not here. And then you have to walk out the room knowing that you can't really tell many people until it's officially announced. Yeah. Like um, we knew about Elden Ring a long while before the world did effectively. Uh, Matt and Rich especially. Um, so the guys who own Steamforge, they they were invited by Bandai um, and FromSoft to basically go and sit there and have a preview of it and they couldn't even tell us about it for a long while except wow. for the part where matt went okay something big is coming and you guys you know i i desperately want to tell you i can't right now but it's going to be massive like and literally that not just not not us just the world is going to change because this thing will happen and it's going to be amazing and as soon as i can tell you i'm very excited to tell you all about it because we're going to make you know an awesome game and as me then as me going okay i have absolute trust in you that sounds cool <laughs> you know when you can and that's what it is. Like part of one of the one of the one of the important things for us, obviously, is is trust with our licensed partners. Yes, you know, where we work with them, and it is something where you know, again, as as a what I've lot of what I've said, that that invariably means that we want our licensed partners to be able to trust us implicitly, the same way as we trust them. Obviously, we tell them a whole bunch of stuff about how we work as a company and various type of different things. So yes, there's. And I think a lot of that goes from a professionalism beyond the ND, you know, before the NDNA. Um, so it doesn't have to be like, yes, I'm under an NDA with a whole bunch of different companies. I can't talk about stuff that I actually, you know, that I actually work on. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to anyway because I have too much respect for them. So yeah, and it ruined the surprise. Well, it's really, well, it was really you know. interesting. It, it was really interesting talking to people about you know, new forthcoming Resident Evil games when we were making two and three and so on. Everyone's going, oh, I wonder what this is like. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder too. You know, it's like totally kind of, you know, just lying. Um, so, yeah. How do you, um, how do you relax then? I mean, it's really because when I want to relax, I kind of, podcasting actually allows me to relax. Um, Sam, I'd, you relax by podcasting um Sherwin, you're the, <laughs> Sherwin's the odd one out doesn't do that uh, how do you relax I, I don't know I mean it's it's interesting to say I mean obviously my hobby is my is my life and is my job um I generally tend to so I guess I mean I, I paint a lot of models I find painting is is extremely tranquil for me yeah. um I'll put on music or whatever else and I'll just sit there and I'll paint. Mm. And and that's something where I'll just lose hours and hours and hours because when I paint a model, I'm not just looking at it and going, oh, well, you know, this thing needs to be done. So I blast through it. For me, painting a model is storytelling. 
Um, it is, if, if I'm painting something for an army, I'm getting into the mentality of what is this thing I'm painting? What's its story? Yeah, why is it here? I'm looking at every sort of part of it. Like at the moment I'm painting this, this giant model, right? So I'm looking at it and it's kind of, its armor is a bunch of shields hanging off of it because it, no one makes, you know, no one makes um, armor for the size of this creature. So I'm looking at it and I'm like, ah, oh, these, these things have been gifted to it by like, you know, the tribes that are kind of coasting it off to war to go fight for them or whatever else. Or maybe it's killed these people and stolen them and put it on a bit of rope so it's got a bit of armor or whatever else. And as I'm painting the model, I'm kind of understanding that. And that influences the colors I paint for things or, you know, where I put bloodstains on it or, you know, various different bits and pieces. And that for me is like the part where I just have my escapism button switches and I'm, I'm done. So, Do you paint, Sam? Have you ever taken I up the brush? I, I, I do have a copy of uh, Blood Bowl that is still unpainted. I think I've painted about four, four miniatures. But when I have done it, I do find it in... It is incredibly relaxing, and mm. the yeah the, the 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 process of it and the and the and the, and the detail and the and the literal you know as you're saying Sherwin you got the the literal layers that you're putting on a model but then there's also those fig you know those those figurative the, the the metaphorical layers that you're kind of adding to it where suddenly it's not a piece of plastic anymore it's got a it's got a a, a history. Um, to it but it's if for me it's just finding that finding that time to to dedicate to painting something i'd like to do a lot more a lot more of i just started this week did you cool literally literally last night what are you painting i'm i'm painting um i got given gifted by the lovely andrew a little kill team set of ultramarines. Cool. Ah, so nice. Are you painting them blue, or are you doing a different? Chapter? I'm I'm gonna do them purple because I'm a big fan of kind of like purple. <laughs> so I'm going to. I've I pri I I went into the hobby shop and I just went set me up. I think it's like the imperial loyal people or whatever. I don't know. Oh. I don't know their names. <laughs> I don't. Are I'm they not be competition a, legal. I don't care. They're going to be bright purple and beautiful. Um, but yeah, so I uh, that's not what I think. There's purple stars apparently. I'll, I'm, I'm just looking now. I'm going to tell. I'm going to. I'll tell you. Oh, Claude's. That's what I'm thinking of. I'll tell you. I'm going in. I'm going. This is going to make brilliant podcasting. But people, you're just going to have to because this is like this is out there. So I've got that. But um, they're not they're not the emperor's children because that's somebody else entirely. Oh, they're, they're naughty. They're naughty people. Are they? Maybe they'll talk about them. Oh. They, they used to be good guys, and now they're bad. Oh. Are they purple? They are purple. They're very purple. No. They're so purple, they had to discover new colours of purple to make their armour purple. <laughs> oh, because they look right, quite cool, purple. You can just make them bad guys. Purple and gold. That's my oh, colour yeah. scheme. So that's, you know, so I've got, I went in and I got black primer, so they're all sprayed with a black primer. I'm then going to dry brush them with white to get some highlights. Mm-hmm. See, my problem is, right, is that I can't just go in and do something half-hearted. No. You know, it's like, oh, I think I'll write an article. Oh, actually, I'll go and get published in Tabletop Magazine. Um, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which, is avail- which is available to buy. It's an interview with Jamie Stegmaier. Thank you. Um, 
But I just know that I'll kind of like, I'll not just be like one coat and stuff like that. I'll be on YouTube videos and I'll be buying magnifying glasses and everything like that. But I, I, yeah, I used to draw quite a lot. And so I'm kind of interested to see how I can take things from kind of 2D to kind of 3D. So we'll, we'll see. But it's kind of interesting because I thought I've been meaning to paint for ages. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to try it out. So that's going to be C and I'll probably paint mm. to them and then I'll forget about it. Um <laughs> Shameful, we will have to remind you. Yes. Sam and I now have a burden. Welcome to the burden of painting. <laughs> I'm just going to get oh, random, yeah. random, I'm going to like random emails and it's like, oh, where's that email from? Oh, Steamforge, who's that? Oh, no, it's not. It's just a big banner saying, have you finished painting yet? What we'll do is we'll start doing painting hangouts, um, which you won't be familiar with, but, but what we'll do, it'll help inspire both of you to paint. So you basically just jump on a call like this, you don't record it or anything, you just sit there and paint models and hang out while you're doing it. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to hang out with the designer of like, <laughs> <laughs> come on, I'm just, it's bad, you know. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. That sounds, that sounds amazing to me. I'm totally up for that. Um, what's next on the horizon for you? If you look in between where the sun meets the sea <laughs> what's on the horizon for you next <laughs> I don't know if there are always new horizons um, I can honestly say <laughs> There's, I've got I mean at the moment I'm working on what about five wow. six different projects so at the moment a lot of what I'm doing is, is finishing off bits and pieces um, and obviously there's this thing called Elden Ring, which I'm working on quite frantically at the moment. Wow. It takes up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Is there, a lot, is there a long time on, like, the pledge manager and stuff like that? Has that still got months to go before oh, yeah. that down? Pledge managers are, like, the opposite of Kickstarters. Kickstarters are, like, this, this short <laughs> burst of activity where everyone's very, very excited about doing this. And then pledge managers open and stay open for months on end, and they're very unsensational. They kind of just start ticking along in the background. Get, like, an email to say you've not completed your, your kind of pledge manager. Um what about you sam what's on the horizon for you what's on the horizon for me um i am currently playing uh hi-fi rush which is an ace um video game which is another thing that doesn't really translate well into into board games is rhythm rhythm action games but you were hinting at a guitar hero one there sherwin so maybe you've maybe you've cracked it um what else is on the horizon? Um, I've got my good friend Peter from the podcast sent me a copy of Troika um, the other day. So I think that that is his next big ambition is to run a game of um, Troika at some point, um, which would be good fun. And when's the next Staying In podcast coming out? Oh, uh, when's this coming out? <laughs> I don't know. I've got to, I've got to I've got to edit it and make me sound fantastic and wonderful. Which is gonna be Episodes weird. Episodes are released on the first and the fifteenth of every month. So, so there you go. And and for those who haven't listened to Staying in Podcasts, it's an absolutely fabulous, wonderful podcast which is all about oh. various kind of lovely main you could say it's gonna say geeky things, but it's not. It's about mainstream popular hobbies and entertainment so it talks about films it talks about board games it talks about resident evil um and you can check mm-hmm. out it's it's hosted <laughs> i was going to make sure it's hosted by 
Dan, 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 and Dan. And the reason I'm saying that is because the last time I spoke about who was on it, I've completely forgot to say Dan. That was years ago, and he has forgiven me. But it's Dan, yeah. it's Chris, it's Pete, and it's Sam, and they do a kind of a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. So that's worthwhile checking out. We'll put the notes in the show notes. If people want to keep an eye on what you're up to in the internet webs, Sherwin, where can you find you on the internet webs? Uh, there's an SFG Discord. Uh, which you can jump in. I chat to people quite a lot. Um, Alternatively, you can find me on Twitter at Sherwin's Agenda. Uh, And then in our Facebook groups for various different uh, things we have. So Dark Souls, uh, Horizon, Bardsung, Resident Evil, those are my normal stomping grounds. And again, we we will put links in the show notes so that we have notes to show. If you want to see what we are up to, just jump onto the internet webs and search for We Are Not Wizards. You will find me in the internet. You'll find me in print. Did I mention I'm in Tabletop Gaming Magazine? Um, it's just available. Um, I also do an article about why online rulebooks aren't good. Um, so you can check that out. You can go to all those different places. And if you've listened to it along tonight, then do a couple of things. Um, go and check out Staying In Podcast and listen to them, give them a rating or a review and if you are going to be giving them a rating or a review don't give them 10 stars on the old Apple podcasts because they're lovely but I don't want them to be big headed but at the same time don't give my friends one star otherwise I will hunt you down like the dog you are, give them something in the middle like a 5 because they're average, but not not average but the person who's not been who's not been average tonight it's rather wonderful, rather fantastic Mr Sam Turner Thank, Thank you. you for coming on, Sam. Thank and you. the absolutely amazing, the inventive, the fantastical, the man who has cardboard coming through his veins. That sounds a bit weird. <laughs> Look at the eyebrows are going all over the place. It's Sherwin Matthews. Thank you, Sherwin, for guesting again. Thank you for that wonderful sign-off. It's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we wait till after nine o'clock, we get nicer. But... <laughs> There's only two more things to do. I need to go. I'm on a yellow and I'm coming down. Um, the first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Sam? No. Are we wizards, Sherwin? I don't believe so. Good. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Sam. Say goodbye, Sam. Goodbye, Sam. And it's a goodbye from Sherwin. Say goodbye, Sherwin. Goodbye, Sherwin. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe. Rule sixes make something awful. And until the next time, a wizard stay in, never stay steam forged. Bye. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.